If you uh, have your Bible, you can turn over to Ephesians chapter 1. We're continuing today our series in the letter to the Ephesians. Um, Remember last week we saw that in chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, Paul writes one long sentence. It's like he can't help himself. It's this run-on sentence, uh, almost like he's firing off bullets from an automatic rifle, just one after the other, boom, 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 trying to tell us over and over again what, uh, what the riches that we have in Christ are. Uh, last week he focused particularly on what God the Father did for us. Uh, before the world was ever made, he said, God the Father chose us to be saved. He predestined us to be his sons, it says. Uh, today, uh, in these verses that I'm going to read, he's going to focus on what God the Son has done for us, uh, particularly that word redemption there in verse 7. So let's hear God's word this morning. In Christ we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us, in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Amen? That's the word of the Lord today. There's a uh, French philosopher named Luc Ferre. You've probably never heard of him because we don't talk about French philosophers very much. But nevertheless, uh, several years ago, Luc Ferre wrote a book called A Brief History of Thought. A Brief History of Thought, which that title kind of stuck out to me because it's a very short book and he's trying to summarize all of human thought and all of history in that little short book. Pretty, pretty amazing. And so I picked it up and read it, and uh, he's a great writer, so he just really briefly summarizes all the different ways that human beings have tried to explain life throughout history. And all along the way, he gives his uh, opinions about all the different points of view, and it became clear that Luke Ferre is an agnostic. Uh, And if you don't know what that is, an agnostic is someone who says that we can't know for sure uh, whether there really is a God or not. We can't know for sure which religion is more true than another. Is Christianity more true than Islam? And is Islam more true than Buddhism? You can't really know those things for sure. All you can do is kind of know the best you can. You know, you can kind of make guesses. Uh, Well, knowing that, knowing that he was an agnostic, when I ran across a, a paragraph or two in his section about Christianity, it really stuck out to me. Because he talked about how when Christ lived, and then when the apostles went out and spread the gospel, like Paul, uh, writing this letter to the Ephesians, it completely turned the thought world of human beings upside down. Turned it upside down. And so he summarized it like this, and I thought it was amazing. This is me paraphrasing. If I could believe, I know what I would believe, he says. It was an amazing little section. He says, if I could believe in something for sure, I know what I would believe. He said it would definitely be the Christian message. And here's the reason that he gave. Listen to this. He said, I grant you that amongst the available doctrines of salvation, 
Nothing can compare with Christianity. Not any of the philosophies that have ever existed. And, and he, talks, he makes a big deal in the book about how every philosophy and every religion the world has ever known has always been about salvation. People trying to find redemption, as it says there in verse 7. And yet he says there's no one that can compare. There's no other thought that could compare to what Christianity offers. He calls it Christianity's seduction is the way he described it. It seduces us because it gives us the most beautiful picture of what saving redemption is all about. Well, I hope that the verses that I read to you a minute ago would explain what I think Luke Ferre was seeing about Christianity. In Christ, it says, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our sins. And so today I want to just answer a few questions about redemption. Really, the whole Bible's teaching about salvation can be summarized in that one word. What does it mean to be redeemed? And so look at your bulletin. There are three questions quickly that I want to look at this morning. What redemption means is the first one. Secondly, how does God give us redemption? And then lastly, what benefits come along with it? Okay, what does it mean? How does God give it? And what benefits come along with it? Well, first of all, if we think about the meaning of redemption, I want you to think in your mind first of an ordinary, everyday way that we still use that word, redeem. Uh, Every single time you go to use a gift card, you see the word redeem, don't you? Uh, maybe you got an Amazon gift card for Christmas. What you have to do is go onto the website, and there is the button that says, Redeem a gift card. And you hit the button. And then what does it ask you to do after that? It takes you to a page, and you've got to enter in a code. And that code has to match the code on the gift card. It has to be a valid code. And when you enter a valid code in, it credits to your account money that has already been spent with Amazon. And right there in that little process of redeeming a gift card, you understand what the word redeem means, if you'll think about it. Because redeem means simply this, to claim something, to claim it as your own, because it's already been paid for. That's redemption. To claim something as your own, because it has already been paid for. Uh, We may even talk about a a story, like if you watch a good movie, you say, man, that, that story was so redemptive. And what we mean by that is everything sort of got resolved at the end of the story. Everything got put back together. Everything got claimed for the cause of right, and usually it was a costly claiming. Usually uh, the, the resolution came about at great cost to one or two or many of the characters in the story. It's a claiming based on a cost that has already been paid. Well, Paul tells us there in verse 7, if you'll look at it, He says, in Christ, not only have we been redeemed, I want you to think about this. I know it's cold this morning, but get on your thinking cap because there's some things we've got to think about deeply today. He doesn't just say we have been redeemed by Christ, which is true. He doesn't just say Jesus redeemed us, which is true. He says, in Jesus, we have redemption. That's a pretty interesting way to put it. In fact, only twice in the Bible does it put it that way. Right here and in Colossians chapter 1. Most uh, Bible scholars agree Colossians and Ephesians were written by Paul at the same time. 
when he was sitting in the same prison cell to two different groups of people. And so at the same time, he's thinking about this phrase a lot. Apparently, he's been meditating on this idea while he's sitting in the jail cell. We aren't just redeemed by Christ, but we have been given redemption itself. It's almost like he's saying, what other human beings have only been able to dream about in their philosophies, in their life improvement, self-improvement strategies, in their religious ideas, we have now received in full through Christ. What others could only dream about, we have been given once and for all, forever. We have been given redemption itself. It's a difference between saying, Tom Brady won a game, and Tom Brady had a victorious career. Which it looks like we're about to have to say, right? He's had a career that was victorious, sadly. And this is saying, not only did Jesus redeem, Jesus has won redemption and has given the whole thing over to his people. Isn't that amazing? Now, if that's true, if, if it's really true that in Jesus, we, don't, we weren't just redeemed, but we have ultimate redemption, it makes perfect sense that you and I this morning would ask the question, what is this ultimate redemption? What is it that Jesus redeemed us from? And what did he redeem us for? Well, look at what it says. If you continue there in verse 7, we have redemption through his blood. We'll get to that in a minute defined as the forgiveness of our trespasses. Do you see how he's doing that? Uh, the through his blood, that's just a, we, we call it a secondary clause there. If you take it out, really he's saying we have redemption, that is we have the forgiveness of all of our sins and all of our trespasses. In other words, you've got to think about this. The ultimate redemption a human being can experience is that they would have their trespasses the ways that they violated God's commandments and rules, they're trespassing against God completely canceled and forgiven. The big question this morning is, do we believe that? Do we believe that? Sometimes even those of us who believe in the Bible, we believe it, but unlike Luke Ferre, who doesn't believe it, we are not willing to say, but I want it to be true. <laughs> right? It's like we believe it, but we don't really... We don't get enthusiastic about it. You hear what I'm saying? We believe it because it's kind of what we've always been taught and we know we're supposed to believe it, but we don't have an excitement in our bones because we know that the ultimate redemption has been given over to us, which is the forgiveness of all of our trespasses and sins. All the ways that we've violated God's commandments and God's word. The only person that can forgive a trespasser is the one who's been trespassed against. You know, if someone broke into your house with a deadly weapon, and then the next day I said to them, no, don't worry about it, I forgive you for doing that. If I said that about your house in front of you, what would you say? I'm not going to press charges, don't worry, I forgive you. And it wasn't my house. You'd think I was crazy, and, I, and I, I would be crazy because it's just a fact. The only person that can forgive anyone actually of anything is the person who's been offended, especially with something like trespassing. And the Bible defines sin as trespassing into God's turf with a deadly weapon because God alone, to God alone belongs the throne. 
To God alone belongs the crown and the rule of all the world. And yet you and I in our sin have tried to take away God's throne from him. We've tried to steal his crown and his scepter and rule our own lives and rule the lives of other people while we were at it. The only one who could ever relieve us of the guilt and burden of that is God himself. And here it says in Christ, God has done that very thing, that miracle of forgiveness. A lot of times, don't we, we think about a lot of problems that the world has. Does the world have problems this morning? Many. We, we, could, we could be here all morning listing them, small ones and big ones. A lot of times we think about all those problems, and we think about the various lowercase r redemptions that are needed to solve those problems, and we get all obsessed about all those things. But here Paul says, not that those problems aren't important, but that underlying all the other little problems is the sin problem. Do you believe that? The problem of violence, the problem of war, the, the social problems, the political problems, the medical problems, the injustice problems, the poverty problems, the hunger, hunger problems. All those problems are underlied by this fact. Human beings have trespassed onto God's throne with a deadly weapon. And we're reaping all the poisonous results of that. And the Bible actually goes this far as to say, if you solve the sin problem, you'll end up eventually solving all the other problems. That's why God, when he sent his son into the world, didn't send him as a political leader to solve the political problem first. He sent him as a sin-bearing lamb to solve the sin problem so that eventually, yeah, all the political problems will be solved under King Jesus, for sure. But he starts with the heart of the problem, the underlying problem. And the fact, the reason why he did that is because there could be no problem bigger than the problem that you have with your maker. I mean, just think about it. Um, to have someone mad, a person mad at you is one thing. To have God mad at you, that's another thing. To have God against the people that he made is a terrible, terrible thing. Well, I don't think we even understand how terrible it is. And yet, it says here, God the Father out of love, sent his son to make peace with those who did not deserve peace with him. This morning, do you believe that the ultimate redemption you can experience is the forgiveness of your trespasses? And do you marvel at it? Let's don't let agnostics outmarvel us at Christianity. Don't let agnostics outmarvel us. If he, if he wants Christianity to be true, even though he doesn't believe it, we ought to at least want it to be true because we believe it. <laughs> we ought to be excited about it, interested in telling others about it, interested in living more and more in light of it. All right, That's the first thing. What does redemption mean? It's to claim at cost. God has claimed us from our trespasses at the cost of his own son. Now, secondly... How exactly does God deliver to us redemption? Well, Paul uses two phrases here. He says, first of all, it's through the blood. And second of all, it's according to the riches of God's grace. And both of those phrases are all about the cost 
that God had to pay. Specifically, it gets down to specifics here regarding the exact cost that God had to pay to redeem sinners like me and you. Um, Think about every time you've ever forgiven someone, you paid a cost. Do you know that? Forgiveness is never cheap. I mean, go back into your mind to a time when someone hurt you and you forgave them for it. Which, by the way, forgiveness is a decision, isn't it? Uh, Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a decision. Uh, Feelings come and go. You, You decide to forgive someone. And when you decide to forgive someone who's really hurt you, you're always deciding to bear some of the weight and the burden and the cost of what they did to you on behalf of them. Uh, The opposite of forgiveness is vengeance. And vengeance, by definition, is saying, you are going to pay. Like, you hurt me, and I'm going to make you pay. And I hope you pay. And I hope you get worse than I got, because you did this to me. Well, forgiveness, at least a part of what it means to choose to forgive someone, is to say, nope, I don't want you to pay. I'm going to pay by swallowing back my pride. By maybe even being embarrassed because people are going to think I'm crazy for forgiving you. I'm going to die to my desire for revenge. I'm going to hurt. I'm going to bleed so that you can be forgiven. And here it says with the, the infinite God, God is infinite. He's infinite in all of his ways. And one of the ways of God that's infinite is his justice. In the infinite justice and holiness of God, he paid the incredible cost of sending his son into the world to to take on blood so that he could spill his blood. Because every time someone's forgiven, a cost must be paid. That's that's what that little phrase, through his blood there in verse 7, means. In fact, if you look into it, the Bible has an awful lot to say about blood. It's a very bloody book. Uh, From the very first page, it says, the life of a creature is in its blood. Right right from the beginning of the creation story, life is in the blood. And so when people sinned, God told them, hey, you have to come to me through a sacrifice every time. You've got to spill blood. In Leviticus, it says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And so in the Old Testament, when people came to church, they brought their animals with them lambs and bulls and goats and those animals had to be sacrificed the blood had to be spilled out and sprinkled on them and sprinkled on the altar so that they could come to God without being condemned the idea behind that was someone the blood represents life remember someone who is innocent their life had to be substituted for someone who is not innocent I come to God I'm not innocent I owe God And God owes me. But what he owes me is not anything good. What he owes me is wrath, justice. I've trespassed, remember, with a deadly weapon on his throne. Right? And so what has to happen is an innocent has to have his blood spilled in my place. And the scripture says all those animals that died, those were just a training exercise for the people of God before Jesus got here. But when Jesus got here and he died on the cross, he was the Lamb of God with a capital L. Spilling out his blood, not for himself, not just simply to show that he was a martyr, not to end his life in a tragic way that everybody would feel sorry for him, 
but he spilled his blood because he was bearing God's cost for forgiving human beings. Isn't that amazing? I mean, again, this is simple kind of elementary Christianity here today. But again, it's something that we ought to marvel in. Because what God did was, is so wise as well as gracious. So wise. Uh, one writer says it this way. I mean, I want you to think about it. This is actually printed in your bulletin at the very top of the order of service today. It says, for God to allow such a sacrifice for sins would be grace, is grace. For God to provide such a sacrifice for sins is amazing grace. For God to become such a sacrifice for our sins is grace beyond our comprehension. You get that? It, for God to just allow it, that's, that's awesome. For God to provide it, even more awesome. For God to be it is beyond our ability to calculate. That's the reason why Paul says not only is it through his blood, but notice there in verse 7 at the end, it was also according to the riches of his grace, which, verse 8, he lavished on us. When Jesus died on the cross, it was not only the judgment and the damnation of God that we were seeing, which we were seeing because blood was being spilled in our place, but it was also the love of God being poured out. Uh, he uses the word lavish there. Like to lavish somebody is to really wine and dine them. For something to be lavish, it's overboard. You know, it is completely outrageous how much they're spending on you. And the cross of Jesus Christ tells us God, because he loved us so much, even in our sinful state, was willing to lavish, was willing to spend way too much, so to speak, to win us back to himself. This phrase reminds me of the story in the Bible of the prodigal son. You, remember, you know that story, the prodigal son? The story where a man had two sons. One went crazy and wasted all of his money. One stayed back dutifully and served the father. When the crazy runaway son came back and asked for forgiveness, remember what the father did? He didn't just say, son, now you're on probation. You used to be my son, but I'll let you back in as my employee. He didn't do that. He did something that I think everybody who heard Jesus tell that story would have thought was crazy. He ran to the son ran to him, threw himself on him, wept, cried, kissed him, uh, brought a new robe and put it on him, put a ring on his finger, and then killed a fattened calf and had a real big old party, celebrating with everybody. It was so crazy that the older son got really mad at it because he said, look, I've been here this whole time serving you, and here you are celebrating this son who has wasted everything on wild living. He hated you, Father, and yet here you are embracing him in a way that you've never even embraced me. That story is all about the overwhelming cost that God was willing to pay on the cross for us. We are the prodigal son, aren't we? And through his son Jesus, God ran to us to fully pay for our sins, fully pay for them by spilling his blood. This morning, you could try, you could spend all day trying to calculate how much that costs in human terms, and you'll never be able to do it. 
Is it worth a billion dollars, a trillion dollars, a gazillion dollars? You can go as high as you can go and you'll never be able to pick the price that equals the cost of God's Son given to you. And I want you to know this this morning. This is so important. That cost, whatever it was, it was more than we can calculate, that cost fully paid for the forgiveness of your sins. Fully. Have you ever been in debt? No. Good. Try to stay that way. Although it's hard. It's hard. It's hard. Most, many of us have. Most, many of us are, right? In debt in some way. Imagine you went to go pay your bill next month and they sent it back to you with a letter that said, sorry, someone called, got the payoff number and paid it for you in full. Imagine how you'd feel in that moment. I mean, really, sit, sit there and imagine it. What would that feel like? Paid in full. I'd be dancing, personally, right? Maybe you would, I don't know what you would do. I would dance. And just, I would be very, very, very overwhelmingly excited. And I would be so grateful. I'd be crying and dancing at the same time. Overwhelming, great, overwhelmingly grateful for whoever it was that called and got the payoff number and sent in the check. I don't know who it was. But I'm grateful. In this case, we know who it was. And what this verse is saying is that God called and got the payoff number. He got the payoff amount. He knew what it was. You and I can't calculate it because it's infinite. But God knew it, and he paid exactly that. So that if you are a believer in Jesus, the Bible says, you owe God nothing more, and you will never owe God more for your sins ever again. You try to send him a check to pay your sins off, and he'll send it right back. And he'll be insulted that you sent it. In fact, in a way, the greatest thing you can do to offend God as a Christian is to try to pay him for what Jesus, his son, already paid for. And yet some of us, we, we believe in Jesus, or we say we believe in Jesus, and yet we're always trying to pay God back with all the good things we're doing and all the religious things we're doing and all the... It's not that you shouldn't do good things or religious things. It's that you should never think you're paying God back because he's already paid it. Do you understand what... The, this is what Luke Ferre meant by nothing can compare to Christianity when it comes to its doctrine of salvation. Nothing. There's no other religion. I dare you to go find it. They could compare to the good news of a payoff. Out of rich love lavished... By blood spilt out for me and for you. For me. The trespasser with a deadly weapon. Welcomed in by God. Now the third thing this morning and last thing is I want us to see some of the benefits that come along with redemption. And uh, Paul spends some time there in verse... Uh, in verse uh, 8, the end of 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, uh, giving us, I think, two uh, major benefits that come because we've been redeemed. And I want to point them out to you, and then I just want to say a few things about how those can help you this morning. First of all, he says there in the end of verse uh, 8 and in verse 9, that God, having lavished grace on us, then in all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which we, he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. 
Redemption brings along with it the blessing of now understanding what God's way with human beings is, what God's plan is, and how it is you and I can walk according to that plan. That's a huge benefit. Uh, We are in the dark naturally. God has brought us into the light. God has showed us things. You see that? In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will. Mystery. You know, mystery means something is hidden and would have stayed hidden unless it got shown. Right? And by seeing the redemption that God has purchased through the cross, it lights up the world is what this is saying. It lights up life. It helps you understand what normally would be hidden from your eyes so that your life doesn't have to be shrouded in confusion anymore. That's the first thing he says. The second benefit, he says, is there in verse 11 and 12. In him we've obtained an inheritance. We've become heirs. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works everything after the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. We become heirs so that our lives might praise his glory. That's the second great benefit. We become heirs. God has brought us into his family as children. All that he has has been given over to us. All that we are now belongs to him. We're members of his family. Now let me, let me just try, as we close the sermon today, to show you how those two things are tonics for your ailing heart. They're medicine to help heal some of the things that are ailing in your heart maybe this morning. The first thing really deals with the problem of confusion. Do you ever get confused? Ever confused about life? What in the world am I doing here? Why in the world is this or that happening to me? Why does everything seem to go bad? Right? Why don't I ever get the things that I think I need? Or the things that I really want in life? Why does it always seem to be one disappointment after another? We got so many questions. We are a questioning animal as human beings, aren't we? We just question, question, question. And the more we question, the less we have answers to our questions, typically. I mean, all all people in the world have asked huge things like, is there a God, and what is he like, and how can we possibly relate to him, and... What's wrong with the world and how can we fix it and what happens when someone dies? And usually the more people have asked those questions, the fewer real answers they've come up with. Confusion. Fog. Well, if you have come to Jesus by faith or if you come to Jesus by faith even today and and receive redemption from him, another gift that comes along with that is God begins to light up your life and dispel the fog of confusion. Just like when the sun comes up in the morning, it burns away the fog. When Christ rises over your life, he begins to show you what God's plan really is. That's what it says there. I mean, that, that word plan in verse 10, do you see it? The plan that God has for the fullness of time. The word plan is literally where we get our word economy from. God has revealed his economy. Uh, he shows us how he, how he operates and how he wants us to operate within his kingdom. So that wherever we go, whatever happens in our lives, we don't have to be in the dark about what God's up to. We don't have to question how to get to heaven. Uh, in the book Pilgrim's Progress, which is one of my favorite books, I quote it all the time, 
when the Christian has his burden taken away at the cross, it falls off his back, the path to heaven becomes apparent to him from that point on. And it's called the King's Highway. And all throughout the rest of the story, he, he walks the king's highway, at least when he's behaving. And then sometimes he gets off the highway. That's for another time. But he knows where the highway is, right? This is saying that when we come to Jesus, we always know what the highway is. There should never have to be any more confusion in my life as in terms of what's going to happen when I die. How do I get to heaven? How do I know God? What do I do now that I've sinned? Where do I go with that? We, we should never have confusion over that because God has laid out the perfect, most clear highway in Jesus Christ. And it's well lit, this highway. So that even in the darkest of times, we can find our path and find the lane that we're supposed to run in. Confusion taken away. That second thing, that inheritance that we've received, really ministers, I think, to our doubt and lack of assurance. Our doubt and lack of assurance. Have you ever thought as a Christian, why am I still the way that I am? Like, like, like why, why am I not changing fast enough? You know, I, I feel like I'm making so little progress and I'm, I'm still committing some of the same sins and the same temptations are just dogging me all the time. And it's just the same depression, the same whatever those things that I struggle with, those same things are always over me. And you can begin to doubt a little bit, am I really God's child? Is he, has he abandoned me? Look at what it says here. Look at the answer this gives. It says No. In him we've obtained an inheritance. In fact, uh, another way to translate that is, in him we have become an inheritance for God. Which is actually the way the Bible puts it, for example, in, in Exodus, when Israel comes out of Egypt, God says to Israel, shocking thing, he says, Israel, you are my portion. You're my you are my inheritance. You are my heritage, O oh my people. And here it says, when you become a Christian, you can know not only have you inherited from God, you are God's inheritance. Therefore, God treasures you. Therefore, God always keeps you, watches over you. As we sang earlier, he will hold you fast, just like you would hold fast a costly inheritance that you were given, a treasure that you possessed we become sort of God's treasure through all the ins and outs of our lives. It says, according to the purpose of him who is predestined everything, you know, him who's worked everything after the counsel of his will, so that we might be to the praise of his glory. And y'all, I, I found this week so much comfort in that phrase. We've become God's heritage so that we might be to the praise of his glory I, I had so much fun thinking about that this week because I noticed it doesn't say we've become God's heritage so that we might speak his praise or declare his praise or sing his praise it says so that we might be his praise you got that there's a there's a subtle difference there but it's an important difference because the Bible does say we're saved so that we might 
speak his praise. It does say that, but here it's not talking about that. It's talking about your very life as a Christian becomes a life that glorifies him because you're his inheritance. You understand what that means? That means even now, in your weak state, body breaking down, mind slipping, whatever, whatever you're facing, you know, in your depression, in your fears, even in the temptations and sins that you continue to struggle with by God's grace, in that moment, God has you right where he wants you, and he's using whatever those circumstances are to glorify his holy name because you're his child. Think about that. Normally, I don't think about my weaknesses and sins that way at all. I think, surely, you know, I've got to get all this fixed up and cleaned up before I can ever glorify you with my life. And God says, no. One day I'm going to clean it all up, and you're going to glorify me fully forever, you know? But right now, you're right where I want you to be. In your weakness right now, my strength is perfected. The fact that you're still a sinner and you have sin in your heart and you're still struggling with that, that just shows how great my grace is and you're right where I want you right now. It's like a parent. No parent wants their child to stay four years old, right? I mean, because that would mean there's some kind of disability. I mean, you've got to grow up from four years old. But while the child is four years old, you love the fact that they're four years old. You love them as they are. You love them where they are. You don't want them to stay there. But while they're there, you adore that four-year-old, even in all their craziness. And I have a four-year-old, and there's a lot of craziness. <laughs> but you love them there. The amazing good news of this verse is this. God in Christ loves you here. Yes, even there. Wherever your mind's going and saying, surely not there. Yes, there. God has designed your life to glorify him, not by just what you do, but by who you are. And the work that he's able to do in your life right now as you are. Don't shortchange God on that. I have a good friend. This is, I'm, I'm literally landing the plane right now. I have a good friend who always says, don't sin against God by not being happy with who God made you to be. Don't sin against God by not being happy with who God made you to be. And I have, a hard, I have a devil of a hard time with that. I always want to get to the next stage. I want to get better and better and better and better. And, and there's, a, there's some good in that desire because, of course, we want to get better. Because God made us to get better until we reach heaven. But in, in the meantime, we're his inheritance still. And our lives, even in our weakness, can glorify his holy name. Amen.